This episode of the Paddock Pass Podcast is brought to you by Fly Racing. Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass Podcast presented by Fly Racing. On today's show, we're going to preview the Hareth Grand Prix. Steve English, Neil Morrison and David Emmett here. And David, you've actually had a fairly action-packed week. You had to jet back home to England to try and destroy the football community. That didn't work out too well for you. So then you've tried to overthrow Boris Johnson in charge. It's been busy for you. No wonder you weren't on last week's pod. Yeah, it does take a... Um, uh, unfortunately, trying to destroy the world does take up a very large chunk of my uh, personal time. But, um, you know, keep at it so far. I'm... Um, uh, my, um, it's been the just the kind of failure that you've come to expect from me, uh, uh, Steve. Yeah, well, I'll tell you what, Dave, actually, I'm just going to go to Neil straight away because, Neil, on the Zoom call, I can see you're in a lovely new decorated apartment. Do you have full receipts for everything? Uh, yes, everything paid in cash, Steve. Um, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, but... Discount rates from your mates. <laughs> exactly, yeah. We're just picking stuff off, stuff off the street. Um, I do live next to a park and uh, yeah, it's been quite useful actually dragging uh, tables and bits of furniture in from that. So of almost giving off the air of respectability with uh, a fully furnished apartment line. Almost. <laughs> Neil, I was going to say almost for you. You're almost about to fly down to Hareth as well. Now, obviously, we're very much into the thick of things in the Grand Prix season. Now, the races start to come pretty thick and fast. But uh, Hareth's always a special one as well, isn't it? It is, Steve. Yeah, I think there's something about the Spanish Grand Prix. Um, me and uh, a few colleagues uh, during, we had a lot of time, obviously, in Qatar to uh, just sit and natter about nothing. And uh, we were drawing up a list of our favourite GPs from the year. And Hareth definitely makes that list for me. It's in my top five. Uh, something about Andalusia uh, in springtime. Um, it's a beautiful part of the world. Usually you've got great weather when it's not too hot. It's hot, but not overly so. And, um, you know, different circumstances at the moment. But Terrest is always one of the best uh, Grand Prix I think you can go to just in terms of the atmosphere, in terms of the history. I think it's um, now the longest running Grand Prix that we have in the calendar. Um, and uh, with Aston not running last year. And... Um, yeah, looking forward to get going this this uh, weekend because we've had a couple of strange races so far and this is probably going to give us a bit of a, a fairer understanding of what's happening in 2021. I quite like that, Neil, that uh, Adam's not on the pod this week. Obviously, he's, he's getting ready for a new issue of On Track Off-Road. So you were able to actually just say Assen rather than the cathedral. So uh, that was a, that was a, a nice, <laughs> subtle, subtle, subtle dig at Adam there. Uh, it, the the funny thing is, I was just on the uh, Dutch Eurosport uh, podcast, which I do with the uh, commentators Peter Baum and Frank Wing. Oh yes, I know. It's all right. It's, it's in another language. You wouldn't understand. Um, but they were saying exactly the same thing about Jerez, and, and you know that it's a real shame that fans aren't there, and it's just one of the best Grand Prix of the uh, of the year because of the atmosphere and because of the the location and uh, and all the rest of it. And we're going back there at the normal time rather than the middle of an absolutely scorching summer. Neil, it's really unfortunate for David that the only words in Dutch I know are Dewey. So uh, seeing as that's all I know, Dave, and you've said that you've just been on with a different podcast, we're just going to mute you for the rest of the call. So Dewey, Dave. Neil, obviously for Hareth last year, it was a very strange race. It was absolutely roasting all the way through the weekend. This is going to be a little bit different, a little bit more back to normality for the Grand Prix paddock. And that's that's a good thing for everyone. We've had obviously Qatar and then you go to Portimao, still a relatively new track. 
and now we actually get into the real meat of the season the tracks everyone knows where we've got that bit of familiarity we do exactly Steve yeah um, and I think last season um, was actually a bit of a misnomer because Jerez is I would say almost always a really fine gauge of telling you who is going to be strong um, throughout a season um, you know if, if someone is on the podium in Jerez normally you, you know that that person's going to be fighting there uh, somewhere up near the front and last year we obviously came away from Jerez thinking that Fabio Quattararo was the man in Mark Marquez's absence and it just didn't pan, pan out that way but um, maybe partly responsible for that was the uh, just the insane temperatures that we had um, last year's Grand Prix Steve you were in Jerez um, at that time of the year as well preparing for World Superbike and um yeah, you can attest that well, it was... preparing your dinner, really, Neil, <laughs> for most of the Grand Prix week. Well, someone has to go out and do the work, Steve, and bring the bring the bacon home. Uh, but, uh, I mean, it was obscene. Uh, I seem to remember after the second race, guys like Maverick Vinales, who are, you know, very, very fit, um, complaining that they, they felt like they were about to faint uh, on the bike, you know, during the race, just because the heat off the other bikes was so strong. Paul Spargo, I think, was another one as well. Um um, so, I mean, there were pretty exceptional conditions and, well, this this weekend we should be going back to some kind of uh, normality, as you say. Yeah, uh, the um, again, Peter Bond was saying, because obviously he used to be a, uh, a crew chief for, in Moto3 and Moto2, and he, what he basically said about Jerez is it's got a little bit of everything. Um, the only thing it doesn't got is a big, long straight. But what you knew about uh, uh, Jerez was if your bike... Uh, worked there then you were going to be okay for the uh, for the season but if it didn't work you knew you were in really really big trouble um so it's and and it's a track where people have had ha- literally have millions of laps around there even earlier this year um we've had the aprilia uh, we've had the aprilia's testing there alicia spargaro's tested there um andre dovicioso also tested there on the on the aprilia the ducatis have tested there or the you know the ducati test team has, has tested there stefan bradl has tested there, Danny Pedrosa for KTM has tested there. Um, it's um, Cal Crutchlow has tested on the Yamaha around there. It's been very, very busy. Um, and it's just, uh, I mean, we used to have the to test there, um, uh, at, at the start of the season. So the team, uh, you cannot. You literally can't overestimate how much data the teams have, how much data the factories have, how much data the riders have. If the riders come up through the Spanish Championship, then they'll have raced there a million times. Um, if they were raced in the Red Bull Rookies Cup, they will have raced there a million times. Um, if they raced in Moto Two or Moto Three, they will have tested there a million times. Um, it's the, the the track holds absolutely no secrets for. Anybody. I mean, I think yeah, even Cameron Bobier, who's coming over um, uh, as a Moto2 rookie, will know the track because uh, he raced, you know, he used to race in Grand Prix, he used to race in, in, in Red Bull Rookie, so so he knows it. So uh, you, it's almost sort of the first track you get to learn as a, as a serious professional motorcycle racer. Yeah, and uh, Dave, it's also one of those tracks that, like you said, everyone's got the information on, everyone knows what to expect. And now that we're back to a traditional Hareth date, it also means that we're able to read an awful lot more into this week than we could last year. We know that, for example, the track temperature, it's going to spike during a qualifying session. Last year, it was just hot all the way through the day and it was actually the wind that was the big factor during qualifying. That was the first time we'd really heard that because always in the past, there was always talk about track temperature. So it's interesting to see how, you know, last week, last year, would have been such a unique season differed quite considerably whenever we talk to riders during the course of the weekend 
Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, the the conditions were so different. I mean, normally um, we're coming to Jerez around the time that we normally do. We normally turn up uh, sort of at the end of April, beginning uh, beginning of May. Um, and so what you've got is the the, the sun is quite strong. Uh, that heats the tarmac up quite a lot, but the ambient temperature is reasonable. You know, ambient temperature is mid twenties, mid to high twenties. Asphalt temperature is, uh, if you're lucky, it stays below 50. If you're unlucky, it sort of edges just a bit above 50, and the track get, gets really, really greasy once the track gets over uh, gets over 50 degrees. Um, this weekend, the weather might be a bit of a factor because it looks like it's going to be almost, you know, a bit miserable. Really, the first couple of days is certainly going to be much colder. Um, there is the tail end of Storm Lola, I believe, uh, blowing across the uh, across the track. But by Sunday, the the sun should be back. It should be a little bit warmer, but that's going to upset people's sort of setup a little bit um, with the, you know, we have a, a different front tire. We have asymmetric front tire. The the, the hard uh, uh, the hard front is going to be asymmetric, and that, I think, um, uh, is going to upset people's um, setup with it, you know, getting used to it and getting, getting uh, hold of it. If the track temperatures are too low during practice and, uh, and qualifying yeah we'll get to that no doubt in a couple of minutes time as well but uh, i'm just after coming back from estoril for cev and we got the tail end of some of those storms as well and there was one like two hour period on saturday night where it absolutely just downpoured and you know i was woken up in the middle of the night by this massive storm outside and luckily enough it passed for sunday's races but there was storms again on Monday whenever I was sitting waiting in the airport for my flight. It looks like that's all the way around the Iberian Peninsula right now as well. So we could easily get affected by that over the course of the weekend. So, Neil, you better make sure you've got uh, got your jacket packed. Just going to say, Steve, uh, woken up by the storm outside, that makes a change. Normally it's uh, the storm within that wakes you up during the middle of the night. <laughs> well, you know, probably, it'll happen an hour later. So no need to worry about that. What about uh, what about for you, Neil? What are you looking forward to this weekend down in Hareth? Well, Steve, um, it's an interesting question. There's obviously lots to look forward to um, after you know really interesting Grand Prix in Portimao. Um, but I think one of the things that uh, you know has, has aroused my suspicion is um, is is the potential of Honda at this track, and I believe in a similar way to, to KTM. You know, I think this could be an interesting guide to just where Honda is at this year. Um, they've obviously had a tough start to life um, in 2021. Um, Mark Marquez has missed, obviously, all the preseason and the first two races. Paul Spargro has um, shown real potential, but also been slightly disappointing in certain aspects. And the LCR guys have just had a, a real tough start to life. Um, but I do think there were a few... Well, several shoots of posit uh, positivity in uh, what we saw in Portugal. Mark, obviously, being the most uh, obvious one. Um, but I think the two LCR guys had um, pretty solid races. Alex Marquez was solid. Takanakagami was pretty heroic when you consider that um, he nearly broke his collarbone on Saturday morning and uh, looked as though he couldn't even get on the bike on Sunday morning because of... Um, um, because of that injury and because of the pain he was in, the fact that he finished the race, never mind finished it where he did uh, inside the top 10, I think was um, a really starting effort. And this is one of Taki's favorite tracks um, so, and, you know, one of Alex Marquez's favorite tracks. So yeah, you just wonder whether the Hondas might be a little bit further up um, the order um, this weekend. Um, I think Mark, you could think you could maybe expect him to be fighting for the top six, maybe 
a little higher. Um, and, you know, I think Honda has gone something like 17 races now in MotoGP without uh, winning. Um, and, uh, you know, if they if they don't win this weekend, it'll be 18 races, which would equal uh, a kind of a phase, I think, back in 2008, 2009, when things were just completely uh, awry with Honda. Um, so, yeah, I think that's going to be something to, to keep our eyes on. Uh, the thing about Jerez is, uh, I mean, the the strength of the Honda is in braking. The, the the place where they actually make up ground is in is in braking. They can brake it very very late into corners and then turn the bike um, uh, and get round corners quite quickly. And um, the thing about Jerez is it does allow you to do that. There are a couple of places where you can brake really hard uh, um, uh, into turn six, um, uh, into the final corner, uh, into the first corner a little bit. But there's a couple of places where you can actually make the different make the ground upon the brakes, and so. Um, um, yeah, that that should really help the Hondas uh, actually be a little bit more competitive. Um, I'm particularly interested to see how fit Mark Marquez is. I don't think um, I don't think he's going to be at 100. Um, percent You saw the way that he was riding at Portimao that he wasn't. He just didn't have the strength to completely control the bike. Um, he still had, uh, you know, the reflexes and the and the ambition. You could tell. You know, he was just as hungry for success as he was before. But the uh, but he just didn't have the, the 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 strength to be able to manage and control the bike. He did actually. He looks he looks very much like he was he was riding uh, or the the way he was riding in to the start of 2013 when he first joined MotoGP. He looked very much like a rookie on the bike. I'm quite interested to see how he does this weekend as well. Not so much from the perspective of his overall result, but just from what we see him look like on the bike like you said Dave to see if he's able to make that step forward there was times during the Grand Prix weekend in Portugal that he looked a little bit stiff times where you could see he was a bit circumspect and whereas it's going to be interesting to see now two weeks later if he's got that confidence to push on further with his recovery because the one thing we saw in Portugal was the speed's still there the reflexes are still there it's just going to take time to just get them sharpened up again and get himself fully bike fit but uh, you know Haret's a track he's always been fantastic at Neil you know we've seen some great results there from him even you think back to last year before he had the crash he was unbelievably fast yeah he was unbelievably fast last year before he had the crash and then uh, less than a week after he had the crash he was unbelievably fast with what was essentially one working arm um, I think he was less than a second off uh, the leading guys in the session that he made his comeback in um, so yeah he's got a great record here um, he's also got some demons to put to bed here um, I'm sure that'll be a bit of a surreal feeling for him coming back and maybe doing his first exit in FP1 going through turn three um, but um, you know, Mark has come overcome these kind of these these kind of things before. Um, I thought it was quite interesting just how he was he was basically trying to to play down to continue to play down expectations. Um, the Sunday after the race in Portimao, um, by saying that he almost had a deal with his doctors, and you know the doctors clearly still had some misgivings about him returning in Portugal. Um, but uh, he said, like, look, if I do this, I know it's going to be quite strenuous on the arm and as a payoff that means that I won't do any other kind of riding away from the MotoGP paddock in between Portugal and, and Jerez you know so I think Mark has only been doing fitness work cardio work he said he's got not really doing any work with weights in the gym between Portugal and here um, so yeah I don't think we're going to be seeing like some kind of mad rise from him or, or, or kind of leap in strength um there'll maybe be a bit more endurance maybe he'll make it to the end of the race without feeling completely um completely knackered on the bike 
Um, but yeah, I still think in terms of, of where his body's at, um, there won't be a big change from what we saw in Portugal. Dave, just out of curiosity, do you go to the same doctor as Mark? Because I haven't seen you do much weight training lately. That's because I do it um, in the privacy of my own home uh, rather than posting about it on the on the old Instagrams, uh, Steve. Um, what uh, Neil makes an interesting point about sort of laying his demons to rest. We can't forget that uh, after he broke his arm at turn three, four, uh, he rode again. Um, the you know a week later um, pulled in, so he's already ridden the bike after breaking his arm there. But the difference this time is, you know, he's going back to ride there after such a long layoff, after the longest layoff of his career, um, uh, knowing that this nearly ended his career, that this nearly, you know, stopped him from riding a bike again. So it's going to be very, very, it's going to be quite different. On the one hand, he knows what it's like to go through that corner um, uh, after his crash, but he doesn't know what it's like to go through that after that sort of with that complete knowledge of, of just how seriously it affected his riding. Yeah, I actually was talking to Leon Camier out at the CEV round and I was asking Leon what a rider feels like whenever they're going through a recovery like Mark's obviously going through or has gone through because Leon's obviously had that over the last few years as well with the shoulder that eventually led to him retiring. And he said that now his shoulder is pretty much perfect for day-to-day -day life. He's able to sleep well, he's able to recover. But when riders are injured, they basically can't sleep. They're, they struggle just to be able to, to lie comfortably at night because they have to still think about their recovery. They still think about how they're going to be able to train, all these different things. And it all adds up all the way through, you know, for a nine month layout like Mark layoff like Mark had, suddenly all those sleepless nights start to add up. And it's only whenever you get back into it that suddenly you're able to think, okay, I can relax about that part. And suddenly the rest of your life can get a little bit easier as well. And you know, that's something that I heard from a few riders whenever I was talking to them about the recovery from injury. It's more so when you get yourself back on, you know that you're okay, you're able to do it again, that your body's able to actually start to relax and you're able to get back to a little bit of normality. So for Mark, he's had to deal with all that stress, all that strain for six months, for eight months of, can you do this again? And then Portugal showed him, yeah, you can do this again. And now is whenever we could see him really start to make some big jumps forward in terms of just his recovery and his overall mindset as well. But it is worth saying that uh, this is a really physical track. Um, you know, it's very compact. Um, there's only one real, well, I guess, yeah, the start finish straight, then the back straight as well, but they're not big, big, long straights that, you know, they don't give you. Well, the back straight, the back straight really isn't a time to relax because you wrestle it over the crest and you're battling the front end and then you weave back to the opposite side to try and control that. So all the way down the back straight, you're having to really manhandle the bike. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, you're looking at maybe the start and finish straight and it's not even, you know, that uh, it's not something that's comparable to, to Qatar or to Mugello, obviously. Um, so this is, a you know, a really physical track, hot temperatures, hot track conditions. It's a bit slippery usually on race day. Um, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's definitely a really long, intense race um, at the Spanish Grand Prix. And I think that's one of the good reasons why it tends to pick out who is good and who's got everything together and who doesn't. Um, so it'll be another test for Mark, yeah. 
Who do we think is going to be um, uh, is going to finish the first Honda? Um, is Paul going to beat Mark, or is Mark going to beat Paul again, or will Alex or Taka surprise us? I think uh, Mark is going to be Paul just because Paul really hasn't got the hang of um, qualifying yet, hasn't got the hang of um, using a new tyre and putting the bike um, really um, to the limits on a, on a one-lap uh, kind of mad dash. Um, so unless he does something pretty pretty miraculous on Saturday, he's going to be starting a few rows behind Mark, I would say. Um, and that's going to be yeah, a big, uh, big handicap in that race. So I would say Mark... Uh, the same could be said of Alex Marquez, of course. It's still not really worked out qualifying on a MotoGP bike. I mean, it's an interesting thing because the other thing is that Paul has really struggled with just a lack of data, with not knowing not knowing the bike, not understanding how the bike works with the tyres and everything. But again, we're coming to a track which he knows. You know, he knows better than any, any probably better than any other track, perhaps bar Barcelona. Um and so he, he should be able to learn. There's so much less for him to learn that he should be able to understand the rest of the bike much more easily. Um, the Honda is still a bike which seems to struggle with uh, sort of, you know, a, a single fast lap. Um, so, yeah, it, it's going to be interesting to see. I, th- I really expect Paul to make a big step this uh, the, this weekend be, just because it is it should be easier for him. Um but yeah, it's hard. To, I mean, it's always hard to sort of. Uh, it's hard to overestimate what Mark is capable of because you you just know it's going to surprise you. I don't think he's going to be on the podium this week, but I do. I mean, like you, I think uh, last time I predicted at Portimao that he'd be in the top five. This uh, this year, I reckon you know somewhere between fifth and seventh is, uh, or well, I reckon he will finish around about fifth place. Let's put it this way. Yeah, I think I also struggled to see one of the other Honda riders finishing inside the top five. So, you know, if Mark's in the round fifth spot, I think he's going to be the top Honda. I think, you know, like Neil said, this is going to be a, a real physical test, but so is Portimao. Portimao is incredibly physical. And Mark was, what, half a second a lap off the pace. So if he's able to to close that down, you know, and obviously Jerez is always a much closer race anyway than uh, somewhere like uh, Portimao. But if Mark's able to to close that gap down, finish within, you know, five, six seconds of the race win, I think he's had a great weekend. You know, if he can do that, you know, he's probably going to finish fifth, sixth spot. I think he'd be the top hot on the because I think the other guys, the other guys are flawed right now. And, you know, we've seen the LCO riders struggling to keep the bike upright. We've seen Paul struggle to understand the bike up to this point. Obviously, now we get to the tracks where you know, he's able to actually compare it to a lot of bikes that he's ridden in the past. So this is where he could start to make a big step forward. But I think for me, yeah, Mark's going to be the top the top Honda rider through it. And it's just going to be interesting to see how it evolves over the course of the weekend. And David, I think that one of the things for me that's going to be interesting, you've already mentioned it, about uh, tyres for this weekend. And I think it's going to be really key to see how that evolves over the weekend. And when we come back after the break... I think that's where we're going to just jump straight into because uh, we've just got the the tyre allocation for the weekend for Michelin as well. We know what they're going to have and we know it's going to have a big impact on the weekend. So after the break, we're going to talk tyres. Fly Racing introduces the new FL2 glove. With molded hard knuckle protection, this race-inspired glove is equipped with palm and gauntlet sliders and touchscreen-compatible fingers. Available in three colors and sizes, from small to triple X, the Fly Racing FL2 glove is the perfect answer at the perfect price. Check out flyracing.com to see more. 
Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast. We've actually just been having a debate about which tyre pun we should uh, open up the second half of this show with. Dave, I'm going to throw it to you. Which which tyre pun do you want to use? Uh, well, the, all these tyre puns are starting to wear on me, you know, Steve. Oh, Jesus Christ. Anyway, Dave, tell us about the tyre allocation for this weekend. You already mentioned it at the top of the show about the asymmetric front making a, a big difference potentially this weekend. Yeah, I mean, basically, it's the same, uh, it's more or less the same allocation as it was uh, last year, um, the same compounds. Uh, the, the difference is that the hard, uh, uh, just like at uh, Qatar and Portimao, uh, the hard front has been substituted for a asymmetric hard front um, which is uh, uh, slightly softer on the left hand side because they don't they don't use the left hand uh, hand or there aren't as many left hand uh, left hand corners basically what we've seen in previous rounds especially Qatar and uh, and Portimao is uh, especially the Honda and the KTM they need the a stronger tyre because they make up uh, as I said lots of their time on the brakes that means that they need more support from the from the front end of the bike and they're really putting a lot more load into it if you can run a softer tyre if you can get away with running sort of the medium uh, by running more corner speed and relying less on braking uh, like the Yamaha does uh, like the Ducati does as well to an extent because the Ducati is actually quite a um, uh, the Ducatis have in the past been able to run softer softer front tyres Suzuki the same um, they can actually they should be able to get away with it but the thing is in previous like last year I think almost everyone bar two riders ran the uh, the the, the the hard option the hard front option um, obviously that was exceptional circumstances because of the because of the weather um, in 2019 I think there was something like four or five riders who ran the medium and the rest were all running the hard uh, the hard front as well so the hard front is very much the the the, the tire of choice for going around uh, Jerez because of those couple of hard braking zones uh, and because of the wear that the the, the the track imposes on the uh, on the front so it's going to be interesting to see what people do if the track temperatures are much lower um especially on friday and saturday then it's going to be really difficult to actually judge how the hard is going to react in a in a race setting because you're not going to be getting it up to t- uh, up to temperature um and it's um the asymmetric front is a bit of a it, it's a bit of a mental thing. So you have to get your head around the fact that as you are sort of tipping the bike over, all of a sudden the rubber changes and you get a different feel from the tires. Um, one, if you can wrap your head around it, then it's then it's fine. I mean, we saw Brad Binder using the asymmetric hard front at uh, Portimao, and he had an absolutely blinder of a race and, and and sort of charged through from fifteenth to fifth. So if you're not afraid of it, if you can uh, convince yourself that okay, it's just going to work, uh, then you can actually do quite. Well, but if you are a little bit afraid of it, a little bit wary of it, then you're not going to be pushing it so much, and it's going to feel like the the the, the tire is just not really responding. Uh, I think it was Alicia Spargaro who was talking about the 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 the, the front tire collapsing. Um, I think a Portimao uh, during practice and saying you know he wasn't giving giving him the support. He might also try the uh, try the hard tire. So I think it's going to be a, a, if there is an unknown there. I mean we've said before there the teams all have so much data at uh, at Jerez uh, but if there is an unknown it is going to be understanding and using this hard front tire and the pay the teams it's really going to or the factories the the, the manufacturers are it's really going to penalize are those who really really need that front tire to be able to go fast and that's Honda and KTM yeah, and it's interesting what you said about Binder there Dave because obviously um he got his head around it and was able to use it 
in the last two Grand Prix. Um, but then there was a, a kind of an initial fear after he got bit with uh, the asymmetric front, what, three times in preseason testing? And then basically just wrote that tire off for the entire first Grand Prix because he thought, well, I don't know how this reacts. Uh, I'm not really sure what's going to happen whenever I pitch in from one side to the other. And um, yeah, just kind of put him off. Um, but, you know, to his credit, he did overcome that. And, um, you know, since then has, has put in two storming, storming races. Just uh, about Binder as well, obviously, Neil, you've mentioned him in the last couple of race pods about him being your rider of the day. Like We saw Hareth, you know, you go back to 2016, his first Grand Prix win, stunning there. He goes really well at Rath. Last year, he was, you know, fantastic pace after his crash, had the podium pace during the race. This is going to be a good test for him as well, isn't it? Just to to try and build on what he did in those opening two, or, well, those last two Grand Prix. Yeah, for sure, Steve. Um, because he was, he was great there in his, his Grand Prix debut. That obviously received quite a lot of attention and rightly so. Um, you know, when he went ran off track and rejoined right at the very back and, um, you know, one point was showing pace I think good enough to be just behind Quartararo, um, which was a pretty astonishing thing for, you know, his first MotoGP race. Um, and it was really notable to hear after the race in Jerez, I think both Paul and Brad were saying how far the KTM had come and how it was basically <laughs> performing better than all the bikes that they were battling with um, on the grid, maybe with the exception of, uh, of Quartararo's Yam uh, Yamaha M1. So, you know, a lot does seem to depend on, on the feeling that the, these guys get with the front tyres. But um, if we were to go off last year's performances, um, I know Brad didn't get the results, maybe that his performances merited. But Paul, I think, got a good sixth place, um, was kind of in the running um, in that sort of top six battle in both times. Um, you know, it could be another race in which KTM are there fighting for, you know, maybe maybe third place or maybe, you know, fifth or something like that. So, um, yeah, that's something else to keep our eyes on. Yeah, I find, I mean, I'm, I am fascinated by KTM's factory lineup because it's such an interesting lineup. You've got sort of Miguel Oliveira, who's a very intellectual rider, he's a very, very smart young man. And, you know, Brad Binder's not stupid either. He's, you know, he's also very intelligent, but um, Binder is a real instinct rider. He rides completely on instincts and that's why he can sort of, you know, he rides on his talent and he uses the bike uh to understand so he understands the bike just by sort of riding it and feeling it whereas Oliveira seems to have much more of a, an intellectual approach to riding you know he's much more like Andrea Dovizioso than Andrea Iannone for a uh, uh, just a, just to use a, 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 a sort of a bit of an odd comparison so yeah um it's a really interesting lineup and I think you would sort of expect uh Binder to be fast quick but Oliveira to maybe catch up with him once Oliveira sort of accepts that, okay, I've got to use this, I've got to use this asymmetric tire, and we've got to try and find, uh, uh, I've got to try and find a way to work it out. And and Oliveira being Oliveira, he will. He's 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 smart enough to be able to do that. Who's who's got the higher ceiling? Do you think between Oliveira and Binder? If you're picking one of those guys to lead your team, who would it be? Binder. Um, I mean, Binder, just in terms of pure talent, I think Binder has more pure talent. I think Oliveira, um, 
Uh, I think Oliveira, in terms of pure talent, is slightly. It, 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 I mean, we're talking fractions, tiny, tiny amounts. Uh, but I think Oliveira is slightly less talented, but he has a lot more uh, mentally. I think uh, Oliveira can uh, Oliveira can move your project much further, um, and Bender is more likely to bring you bring you wins and sort of almost by accident. Um, championships sort of things where Oliveira could win you a championship over a, by being consistent over a season whereas Binder would uh, go off on a tear win seven in a row and then accidentally end up champion without realising it <laughs> um, I think that um, yeah Brad is kind of like a dog with a bone and if you've got a bike that really isn't um, anywhere near the kind of top level then you know that you're still going to have a rider there that can just extract the absolute maximum out of it the absolute last ounce of performance uh, from that bike um, I would say he's maybe just got a bit of a higher ceiling than Oliveira but yeah the, like Dave said there's, there's really not so much in it um, and Oliveira last year um, didn't have such a great first race if I remember or maybe he did actually he had a, a solid first race but then had great potential uh, in the second race and was T-boned by Binder at the first corner um, so we never really got to see what he could have done but um, you know going off then team boss Harvey Poncheral's words at the time, uh, he felt that you know Miguel could have even been fighting for the the podium in that instance. So um, yeah, uh, Oliveira obviously coming off a Duff home GP has a lot to prove this weekend. Yeah, there's quite a few riders with a lot to prove this weekend as well, isn't there? Like, and obviously this is the weekend where Quattararo comes into it. He's got a 15 point championship lead. Goes to the track where he won both races last year. For me, one of the big things I'm interested in, Dave, is just to see how Ducati react to this weekend. You know, Peko's been very impressive through the opening three rounds of the year. His form last time out in Portimao really showed just how good a rider he is now. And it's a continuation of what we saw from him in Moto2. He was a, a top-class Moto2 rider, and it's taken him a little bit of time to find the consistency he needed in MotoGP. But he seems that he's made another step forward this year. And uh, I'm I'm really keen to see if he can take that forward now this weekend in Hareth. Ducati's not, you know, they've not gone well at Hareth for a long time. You know, they've had, I think, two podiums in the last 10 years. Davi had one last year. But this hasn't been a happy hunting ground for them. So if someone like Peck was able to come away with a good result, it bodes very well. Yeah, I mean, if you look at what happened last year, um, I think uh, Dovi got on the podium. Jack Miller finished fourth. Uh, Peko uh, finished sixth. I think that was in the in the first race and in the second race. Peko Banyaya, you know, um, the engine packed up while he was in second place. So it really looked like he was uh, on for a podium. Uh, I think the Andalusia round was the first round race that you thought, okay, right, Peko has really turned the corner this year. Yeah, qualified in the front row as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. The, well, I mean, the uh, Peko is. I mean, I'm really quite excited about uh, about Pe Peko at um, at Jerez, like you, Steve. I think uh, also the conditions should suit him. You know, he he is still a bit wary with the cold. It's something he's been working on, uh, getting that fast first flying lap. Um, that hasn't been. Uh, it, it, he has it, it sort of improved with that um but the thing about Jerez is you you know normally the track temperature is such that you don't have to worry about it so much so yeah Peko also seems to be you know he's coming off a podium he seems to be in a good place sort of mentally um uh Jack Miller is in a hole of his perhaps of his own digging um but yeah Banya yeah as you say really looking forward to seeing what Banya can do because you really think that he's he's he, you know he he has a high ceiling 
Yeah, and I think one of the maybe concerning things, if you're a Jack Miller fan, is um, you know when Jack was explaining the issues that he's had with arm pump in the past, he was saying that it's it's more specific to certain types of track. Um, he said it's quite normal for um, him to get arm pump in Qatar just because of the circuit layout, um, and he said it's also quite common for him to get arm pump in Hareth. Um, so he was saying that you know body wise he was completely fine through the, the Portuguese GP and um, you know he was having no sort of physical side effects from having gone under the knife to correct that arm pump um, what 10 days before um, we got to the, the third round of the season um, but he said that this is a this is more likely to, to pose a, a physical challenge than the Portimao um, and you know Jack is coming here off the back of three pretty tough weekends and um, to borrow his words uh, is in the trenches at the moment so it's uh, you know there's a, there's a lot on his shoulders at the moment um, if he can get a, a decent you know result this weekend you know we go to uh, Le Mans we go to Mugello next and, and you know those should be really good tracks for Jack um, but um, yeah this weekend you just yeah you, you hope that he can get some solid points on the board because at the moment it's been a real tough life to a real sorry a real tough start to life as a, as a factory rider yeah, and obviously for Jack, this is a contract year for him. It's not for the likes of Paco. He's got an extra year, but uh, the pressure really does start to build. And Dave, that kind of leads in nicely to our former championship leader, Johan Zarco, as well, because Zarco obviously crashed in Portimao. And, you know, he'll want to make sure that he's able to go back and show that the, the form that he had in Qatar is what we can expect from him through the course of this year. He obviously wants a factory seat as well. Uh, yeah, but I mean... Zarco coming off of a, a crash like that where you're pushing hard, uh, asking too much of your of your front tire and then trying to manage that and then making a mistake um, uh, changing gear, that will make him not I mean gun shy is a big word, but um, you know it'll make him a little bit more cautious. He is on a contract. he is in a contract year. he wants a factory contract, but he also knows that he will be judged by his championship uh, position. Uh, not by his result week to week. I mean, Pekka Banyaya can go out and um, uh, can take risks, try and win the race and crash and know that he's uh, he's safe in a seat next year. Uh, Jack Miller similarly can't do that, like Joan Zarco, has to be a little bit more cautious because what counts is the end of the... Uh, is he standing at... The, or Well, not so much the, the end of this uh, season because they'll be making a decision by uh, sort of the summer break. Um, but yeah, the, the, the pressure, Zarco is under more pressure, I think. And I, I think he will be after having a crash in Portimao, I think he will be just a fraction more cautious. Yeah. We're on the clock now. We've got five minutes left in the show. So I just want to ask you all for a, a quick, quick thought on things. What about Suzuki this weekend, Neil? What are you expecting? Yeah. So that's the thing, Steve. I mean, we've been previewing this show and obviously, you know, Honda, we expect to be a bit closer. We expect KTM to be up there. We know Yamaha is going to be strong. Um, Peko as well. Um, but Suzuki, I mean, we have to add them to the list um, just because um, I think Alex Rins was on the podium here back in 2018 um, and, uh, you know, would have probably been up there fighting towards the front last year if he hadn't uh, done his shoulder in during qualifying. Um, Mir had a tough start to the season, um, but through the the one day test that we had prior to the racing last year was really strong race pace. I think through um, free practice um, for the first race of the year, at least was, was really strong too. So yeah, you know, in terms of layout, um, you know, there's, there's plenty there that um, should suit the, the Suzuki and um, you know, 
uh, Rins came very close to, you know, to, to finish in second last uh, time out. Mir, you know, first podium of the year. So there's no reason to think that those guys shouldn't be up there fighting again. And uh, Dave, obviously, we've got Tito Rabat jumping back in this weekend as well. Uh, yes. <laughs> That is literally... That's all, that's all, that, that's all you need to know. That's all you need to know. Yeah, but, uh, yeah I mean, look... Like, obviously, for, for Jorge Martin, though, Dave, we, we lose him for a few rounds because of his injury. Tito comes back in. There's no expectation on what Tito can do, but uh, it's it's always interesting to see how riders fare whenever they're just thrown back in. No pressure on Tito. And probably, um, well, definitely a better situation than what he had at Avinci in the past. Yeah, I mean, he's going to be on a much better bike. He's going to be on a brand new bike. That'll be really good for him. But um, he's been riding around on a super bike and really not getting used to the Pirellis and not being at all happy and being very slow. So his confidence has taken a big knock. So I think um, uh, it's in a difficult place. Um I don't expect too much from him. I mean, really, it should be Michele Pirro on the bike, but uh, Ducati being dis- demonstratively um, um, uh, hoity-toity about um, uh, not putting uh, a factory test rider on the bike, just like Stefan Bradl was, because um, uh, they were very upset with Honda doing it, and so now they're just trying to make a point by uh, shooting themselves in the foot and putting um, uh, putting Tito Rabat on the bike instead of Michele Pirro. Right, we've got two questions left. Neil, I'm asking you about Model 2, Dave, about Model 3. What are you expecting this weekend in Model 2, Neil? Basically a bit of a continuation, uh, Steve, of what we saw in, in Portugal. I think, um, I think, yeah, the four guys that um, we kind of have come to expect to be up there fighting at the front um, in Moto2 this year should be there. I mean, Sam Lowe's has historically always gone well at Jerez. Uh, the same could be said of, um, you know, Remy Gardner maybe hasn't had great results before, but, um, you know, likes the track, goes well there, has had good potential on certain occasions. Ralph Fernandez is always, um, you know, has been has been fast there as a Moto3 rider. Um, and Marco Bezecchi really came into his own as a Moto2 rider last year. Um, so I think the thing we should look out for is, uh, is Bezecchi because he was... Um, coming back from a, a pretty nasty motocross uh, injury uh, when we raced there last year and he crashed out of podium contention um, but it was the first kind of glimpses that we saw of him as a really really good Model 2 rider um, so yeah I think Bezeki should be um, should certainly be a lot closer if, you know, in, in the mix than he has been so far this year um, maybe he'll be the man to beat and uh, Dave in Model 3 who's going to stop Pedro Acosta? Uh, Pedro Acosta probably um, uh, you know it's, it's going to be one of those difficult races where which is decided in the final corner I mean I think we saw it uh, in both races last year uh, that the final corner uh, being in the right position in the final corner is what decided where they um, uh, uh, where they finished um, I was just looking up the uh, Jerez one last year and most of the uh, uh, most of the successful pay, uh, per, uh, I was just looking up the uh, result from the first race in uh, Jerez, the Moto3 race and the first uh, three riders Arenas Ogura and Arbolino have all moved up to Moto2 um, so they're not there uh, and in the second race uh, it was riders like Vietti and McPhee and uh, the, the, the the usual suspects so I think uh, and Darren Binder so I would I'm interested to see what Darren Binder can do I think Darren Binder really has to uh, you know recover his confidence against after uh, after a disastrous uh, race in Portimao um, but uh, Pedro Acosta it really is going to be about who can stop, uh, uh, stop Pedro Acosta and I mean just by the first three races it's going to be hard 
yeah, I think it's going to be a lot of drama on Sunday just to see what happens across all three classes. It's going to be quite interesting all the way through. We'll also have, um, obviously, next week we'll be back for our normal Paddock Pass podcast reviewing the Hareth Grand Prix. We'll also have the follow-up show as well where we'll look at the Moto2 and Moto3 action. And then during the course of this weekend, we'll also have on Patreon the Paddock Note specials for all of our Paddock insiders on patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast. Be sure to check that out if you want to be able to kept up to date all the way through the race weekend. So for myself, Steve English, from Neil Morrison, from David Emmett and all the team here at the Paddock Pass podcast, big thank you for listening to today's show and uh, we're looking forward to the action already for this weekend. This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler, David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com. We'll just give uh, the few seconds of silence. That's obviously for JB's broken bone.